Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Right now in our calendar is the counting of the Omer. And for those of you who are not familiar with this, in, in between Pesach or Passover, which is that point in time, that, that spiritual energy that, that took place thousands of years ago, but takes place every year for us, where we leave our Egypts and our mindsets of restriction, and they lead to Shavuos, which is the point in time in the past and ongoing where we receive the Torah. There's these days in between, these 49 days, where we are biblically commanded to count the Omer. And I know that there's a lot to this. I know there's nothing that the Almighty asks us to do that doesn't have a profound benefit to us. But I wanted to learn more about this and how I could tap into what is happening right now. So I brought on a rabbi that I've not brought on to my podcast before to discuss this in more depth and educate us on the importance of what is happening right now, explain it, and, and show us how we can tap into this point in time to improve ourselves, to improve our closeness to Hashem, which I believe is what every mitzvah and holiday is there for. And to give you a little background, I'm going to start off with a, with a story. About seven years ago, I had just really been starting to study with Rabbi Yochal Fulby. And it was the first time I ever got to know a Torah scholar on a personal level. Now, I had met really intelligent people in the business world in my past, people that were very knowledgeable and very educated in the secular world and business and law. They were very successful, according to how we define that in the secular world, as having lots of money, lots of financial wealth. But whenever we get to talk to these people, they always lack in so many different areas. Either they were shallow in other areas of life, or their character was very flawed. You know, often they would be extremely arrogant. And I would see them, they would be rude to wait staff, and they would boast about their extramarital affairs. And I just sort of reasoned that we only have so much finite intellectual capacity that if it's focused on one area, like mastering the business world and those intellectual endeavors, that other areas, they're just going to be lacking. And so when I was starting to study with Rabbi Yochal Fulby, I saw that I met someone that was not like that. For one, he had a much greater intellect than anyone that I ever met in the business world, not only in Torah, but just the ability to solve problems and break things apart. You know, things in the business world, even though I was never exposed to the business world, I could bring him a business challenge that my colleagues and I were challenged with, and he could effortlessly dissect them, break it apart, and solve them for us. And I never met anyone like this. And then at the same time, he was extremely humble, extremely gracious. You know, he just had these this perfect character. And I realized that man can encompass all these things, great intellect, perfect character traits. And I knew that was because of Torah study. You cannot get that through any PhD program at a university. That came only through Torah study. And I wanted this so bad. I wanted to be like this. And man, what my, that voice in the back of my head, now that I know it's my Yetzirah would tell me is, it would say, Dan, come on, this rabbi, he was immersed in this from birth. Look at his pedigree he came from, all these Torah scholars. So yes, he was able to accomplish that, but come on, be realistic. You can't do that. You know nothing about Torah. You are crude. You are crass. 
just be realistic with your expectations on what you can achieve. And I was having lunch with Rabbi Wolby one day, and I shared with him my thoughts on this matter. And he said, that is totally untrue. He said, let me tell you something. There was a man that came to Yeshiva when I was there, and he knew less Torah than you know now. He didn't know any Hebrew. I just sit there with him with flashcards, teaching him the Aleph Bet. And he focused on it day after day. And now he is a tremendous Torah scholar with sterling quality character. He's amazing what he's accomplished. So you can never use that as an excuse. It can be done. Maybe you're not immersed in yeshiva. Maybe it'll take a little longer. But if you stay focused like he did and keep pushing ahead, then you eventually will get there. And I use that story all the time in my head whenever I got frustrated with studying, with trying to learn something. If I was trying to, to master a mitzvot, let's say it was Shabbos, thinking I had it all down and I learned something that I was not doing right, or usually multiple things I was not doing right and getting frustrated, I would always refer back to that story. The man that came in knowing nothing and forged himself into an incredible individual and a Torah scholar. Now, fast forward to a year ago. I'm now the president of Torch. And Rabbi Ari Wolby and Rabbi Yokoff Wolby said we need to hire someone to focus on the young professionals. And they said, because I was the president of the board, I need to be involved in the interview process and I needed to approve this hire. And I said, I don't want any part of that decision. That's way too lofty of a decision for me. It's too important. You got to have the right rabbi. Otherwise, the younger people that this rabbi should be reaching out to, if that's not a good fit, then they'll lose. And the last thing I ever want to see happen is for me to have to fire a rabbi if they're not a good fit. And tell a rabbi that I brought to Houston, Texas, that from Israel, that he's no longer needed. So I said, I don't want this. This is too lofty of a decision for me. And they said, well, you, you need to be involved with it. So we had an online interview with this rabbi and his lovely wife. And I could tell he was a remarkable individual. Obviously, knowing from where he was studying at the Meteor Shiva and the work he'd done with Aish, that he was very accomplished. But I was still very stressed out since it had to require my approval. So I reached out to Rabbi Yokoff Wolby and I said, what else can you tell me about this man, this rabbi? And he said, let me tell you a story about him. When he came to the yeshiva, he didn't know any Torah. I had to teach him the Aleph Bet with flashcards. And I said, whoa, 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 I know this story. And I completed the story for him. And he said, did I tell you this before? And I said, yes, you told me that story seven years ago. And it's that story that inspired me whenever I became frustrated or down to keep forging ahead. So if this rabbi was able to inspire me for the last seven years, prior to me ever meeting him, then I know he will do fantastic work for the young professionals of Houston by bringing him on board to the Torts organization. So yes, hire him, get him over here as soon as possible. I have no reservations whatsoever. And this rabbi has surpassed all of our expectations. And that's the rabbi I have on with us today to teach us about the counting of the Omer. So I want to introduce Rabbi Chaim Busco. How are you, Rabbi? I'm doing great, Dan. Thank you so much for having me on your program. I, I never heard that story. I didn't know that. Very interesting. I feel very blessed that I was able to play a part in that. I hope that what I have to say will be beneficial to you and, and to myself and to all your listeners with God's help. So if you could start off by telling us a little bit about your background, what brought you, what made you want to go to yeshiva and study? And then after you were at the yeshiva studying, what caused you to want to get into Jewish outreach? I had always been interested in philosophy from a very young age, uh, thinking about what, what life is about. And when I was younger, it was more metaphysical and more abstract. And I was very enthralled by 
what reality is and those kinds of things. And as I started to mature, I was more interested in what we can really know, something more practical. And then as I got a little bit older, when I was in college, I was studying philosophy. And all of those esoteric things didn't interest me as much as things that were much more practical, like ethics. And I really wanted to study ethics. I wanted to know what am I living for? What's the right way to live? I really wanted this clarity. And to my dismay, even though the university that I went to has a, a very reputable philosophy department, I wasn't getting anything from that. It was very interesting material, but the people that were teaching me, they weren't living what they were teaching. It wasn't, uh, th these people weren't searching for a way of life. The example of this that I always give, this is a, a fairly well-known story. There was a professor of ethics at Harvard and he was caught cheating. He was having an affair with one of his students who was underage. So that's illegal statutory rape. They were taking him away and a reporter asked them the obvious question. So how do these two things add up? You, you're doing something so unethical and yet you're an ethics professor at one of the, the greatest universities in the world. And his answer really epitomizes my frustration and my feelings about the entire world of academia that I was exposed to. He said, if I were a professor of mathematics, no one would have accused me of not being a triangle. Meaning there's my life and there's my area of study. And what does one thing have to do with the other? And that really, that story sums up the frustration that I was feeling in that world. And I started to do some of my own searching outside of my studies in university. And I realized that I'm a Jew and I really don't know anything about my own heritage. I had very, very minimal education growing up about what Judaism was, and the education that I did have was wrong. And so I decided to seek out a rabbi. I found a rabbi on campus. I wasn't interested in becoming religious at all, but I wanted to ask him some questions just to see what's the Jewish take on some classic philosophical problems. And I started talking to him, and I was very impressed. I didn't expect there to be any depth in religion. I had pretty much discounted all religion as being foolish and, and requiring blind faith, and there's no intellectual clarity to it whatsoever. And I was blown away because I saw that wasn't the case. And I saw that I was getting answers which were much, much more satisfying than what I was getting in university. Still had no interest in becoming religious, but I was definitely intrigued. And I kept meeting with this rabbi, and eventually he told me he's running a trip to Israel, and he'll bring me along. I just have to keep going to his classes and developing a relationship with him. I said, fine. And a few months later, in December of 2009, he brought me on birthright to Israel, and it was a 10-day trip. I didn't expect much to happen better, but I was excited to see what the land of Israel was like. I didn't really grow up with any sense of national pride of Israel, nothing like that, but it was just an interesting experience. And when I got there, I had, I don't really know what to call it. I had an experience. It was my first day. I was in Sfat, uh, which is one of the, considered one of the most mystical cities in, in the country. Up in the north, it's literally in the clouds. You're up in a mountain, clouds surrounding you. And that first morning when we were there, I walked out on this mountain. I looked over the land of Israel for the first time. And again, I didn't really grow up with any sense of, you know, Israel's my homeland or anything like that. But I, I can't describe it. Just looking at the land of Israel, something something sparked inside of me. And it was a very profound experience that I can't describe to this day. And I realized there's something here that I've been looking for, and I've got to figure out what it is. A couple days later, I called my parents and I told them I'm not coming home. I got to figure this out. Those are a couple very uncomfortable phone calls. It didn't go well then, but over time, things worked out in the end. And what happened was, right at the end of my birthright trip, I told them I want to study Torah. I just need to figure this out, what's going on here. And they set me up in a wonderful yeshiva called Asha Torah, right in the heart of Jerusalem, in the old city, right across from the Western Wall. And it was then my first day 
in yeshiva, maybe first or second day, that I met this one thing we have in common, your mentor, my mentor, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. And like you said, he taught me, taught me Aleph Base from scratch. And uh, I progressed throughout there. I didn't go home for about 15 months was the first time I, I went back to visit home. And by then I was already well immersed. The process didn't happen overnight. It took months and months and months for me to decide this makes sense. This is what I'm living for. And once I had that experience, after years of study and years of integrating Torah into my life and realizing what it can do for a person and what it, what it did for me, and I knew that that's what I want to do for others, to be able to give that experience to others and reach out and teach Jews what their heritage is, teach Jews the, all the nonsense that they thought Judaism was and, and show them the beauty of, of what it truly is and how it can inspire you and how it can build you and develop your consciousness and elevate you. I knew that was my calling and um, it was just a matter of time. 10 years of study and here I am. That's wonderful. When I first started studying and, I, and after I had gone through and learned all the logical proofs for Torah and I was just sold, this is it, this is the creator's word, this is everything we need to know right here. I felt like I had discovered a treasure chest, but yet no matter how much jewels I pulled out, there was more there. And I was just trying to give them out to other Jews as well. And it was, they weren't quite getting what I was holding in my hand. So I'm thankful that I know there's definitely a skill set that comes along with great Torah wisdom. I'm, I'm sure those are both the same thing. At being able to reach people who haven't been exposed to what Judaism and Torah really are, the magic, thats it's all that matters in life. And... That's why I have the greatest amount of admiration for you and the other Torch rabbis uh, with your ability to, to do that. So if you could explain the counting of the Omer. So what do we need to know about this? Because I know there's something beyond just saying a number, counting, that we're supposed to be doing every night and probably every day right now. And I want to know and be able to share with my family as well how we can tap into what the Amadi is really trying to teach us with this. Yes. So you're right. There's much more than just counting a number. And one major thing in all of Judaism is to understand that any point we find ourselves in throughout the year, it's not an isolated event. And even the holidays, Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, these holidays, what they are, they're major focal points. They're peaks in spiritual energy, but they flow from one to the other. And there's a whole picture. There's a whole system moving from one stage to the next stage, building and building. And no one piece of the puzzle is isolated. It's all part of one, one long process. And so in order to understand where we are right now, we have to step back and look at a larger context of the surrounding holidays and the surrounding time periods and what this process is in terms of that greater context. So the first thing is we need to understand that this process now of counting the Omer it's a transition period from Pesach, Passover, to Shavuot. In fact, on the calendar, the Torah describes that, that Passover needs to take place on the 15th of the month of Nisan. And the Torah does not say the date for Shavuot. It does not say on the, on the 6th of Sivan or anything like that. It says you shall count 50 days or 7 weeks from Passover, and then that 50th day will be Shavuot. So it's clear from the way the Torah describes it, the way the Torah prescribes following these holidays, is that there's a process of building from Pesach to Shavuot. And one thing that's interesting to note, which we'll discuss a little bit more later, is that this counting period, we're not counting down to Shavuot. In fact, we're counting up. 
if there's a major event and it's isolated that's coming up, the Super Bowl, someone's very excited about the Super Bowl. So they might count only 15 days left until the Super Bowl, only nine days left. That event is what's important. And we're basically just killing time until we get to that. Only nine days left, only eight days left. And it's what, what happens is that when you count like that, each day becomes irrelevant. It's just a matter of time until you get to what's really important. Counting up signifies that each day that we're moving forward, we have accumulated something. We're building toward a goal and that each day is significant. And it is very significant, as we'll see. Now, before we continue, I should point out that there are two things that we observe during this time period. There's the biblical commandment, like you mentioned, of counting these days up until that period, which also corresponds to a special sacrifice that we brought in the temple. That's the biblical mitzvah. And rabbinically, there's also a period of mourning during this time period, which some people might be familiar with. And we'll need to understand what that is and how that connects to the biblical mitzvah and what's the relationship there. To understand what we're building to, we need to know what we're coming from. What was Pesach? What did we do? Pesach, we refer to as the time of our freedom. We were in a state of slavery. And the word, we were in Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is Egypt. But the word in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, Mitzrayim, comes from the word Meitzar, which means a constriction. And the Kabbalists describe that the state of being in Mitzrayim was a state of immaturity, a state of constriction of the consciousness. It was a spiritual immaturity, a mental immaturity. And what happened was when we came out of the birth canal, really, of the splitting of the sea, we were born as a nation from a state of immaturity of constriction in Egypt, and we became released, and our consciousness expanded to a degree that it would then be possible to receive the Torah. That's what happened in Pesach. And in fact, this might clear up if anyone's familiar with the prayer services that we have in the morning. There are really four stages of elevation of spirituality that we move through. The first stage is the introductory blessings. And in fact, during that time period, we also speak about the sacrifices that were brought in the temple. Now, this parallels physicality, where we understand that our physical nature is meant to be a vessel for spirituality. But we're totally focused on the physical and understanding how it can be a conduit for the spirituality. So we make these blessings about how God gives us the ability to stand and walk and see and all these physical features about us. And we talk about the sacrifices that were brought in the temple, which was a very physical thing, bringing an animal, bringing it closer to Hashem. The word sacrifice in Hebrew is korban, which means to bring closer. So we're, it's all about that physical elevation. From there, we move on to what's called the verses of praise, Pesuka de Zimra. And that period is where we move just one step above the physical, and now it becomes what's called ruach, Ruchnius, spirituality. And ruach parallels speech because it's, it's that wind that occurs right here in the throat that from the breath of the lungs, it comes up and it passes through. That's a connection between the physical and the mental, the spiritual. It's a ruach. So during these verses of praise, we're focusing on speech and how speech is a conduit of our spirituality above the physical. Speech is a very uniquely angelic nature of man. This is during the verses of praise. The Shema, that's even one step above. And that parallels the Neshama, which is totally spiritual. It's above even the wind. It's the level of just breath. Without blowing, without a wind, it's just that soft breath that comes out. That's Neshima in Hebrew. Breath parallels the word Neshama, which means soul. And this level is even higher. This is the realm of thought above speech. This is a very close level 
to Hashem, where we describe our unity with Hashem and our love for Hashem. We're all focused on that. Now, the reason I'm giving you all of this introduction is to just explain what the leaving of Egypt is on a personal level. If you'll notice, during these verses of praise, we say a lot of psalms and, and praise of Hashem, but then seemingly out of place, right at the end there, we, we sing the song of the sea, of the leaving of Egypt. And the reason we do that is because here is where we're making a very important transition. We're making a transition from a state of spirituality that we can connect to, speech, up to a level that's way beyond the physical, that's not even connected to the physical, a, a state of complete unity with Hashem when we say the Shema. To make that transition is very difficult, and therefore we draw in the energy of leaving Egypt, because what the power of leaving Egypt is, is it's a, a release from the constriction of our immature state of mind to a state of expanded consciousness. And in that level, in that meditative state that we achieve, having said all of those verses, Using that transition of leaving Egypt, we can now reach the state of unity with Hashem when we say the Shema. And in fact, even after we say the Shema, we repeat a few key phrases from the leaving of Egypt right before we go into the Amidah, the silent prayer, which is an even higher level, but that's not the topic of our discussion now. That was the leaving of Egypt. It's the time of our freedom. Now, the freedom isn't complete until we've actually achieved the goal which is the receiving of the Torah. That's the whole purpose. We didn't just come out of Egypt so that we wouldn't have to do slave labor anymore. We came out of Egypt for a very specific purpose, to receive the Torah. And what receiving the Torah is, is not an intellectual book of laws. As you were mentioning earlier in your introduction, what Torah is, is something that can totally transform a person. And it's not meant to be studied on a very superficial intellectual level, which unfortunately many times it is. It's a tragedy. It's meant to be integrated into your being. And in order to do that properly, you need to prepare yourself and become a proper vessel for receiving this divine wisdom. It's not a simple thing at all. It transcends your physicality. It transcends what's natural. And it requires a lot of preparation and understanding of how to make yourself into a vessel which can contain this, this divine energy. That is Shavuot. That's the receiving of the Torah. And so therefore, the process of going from leaving Egypt, where we have now achieved a state of release, release from that constriction of what the Kabbalists call mochin de katnus, which means a, a consciousness of immaturity into an expanded consciousness, we now have to use that ability, that freedom to prepare ourselves to become proper vessels for receiving the Torah. That's this time period now. That's counting the Omer. And I'll describe in a minute exactly how to do that. So basically... To summarize what you're saying is, once we're free of those immature, those mental limitations, then before we can receive Torah, we have to, in an essence, forge ourselves into a state of consciousness so that we can receive it. And so we, we can't really even go to Shavuos without preparing ourselves. Otherwise, I guess what you're saying is we won't be able to receive what is intended to be received on that day. Yeah, that's pretty much it. With this expanded consciousness, we're able to work on all of the different traits which are required to receive the Torah, which I'll briefly go over in a minute, but I highly encourage you to study out and how to acquire them. But before that, I just want to mention one other point about what Passover is and what Shavuot is and that process. People often ask a question if, when they're dating, how do I know I'm really in love? You know, maybe it's infatuation, maybe it's love. And what Disney movie teaches you 
is that there's no such thing as infatuation. It's always love. And it's so wrong. And the answer is, let's say you meet a girl, you meet a boy, and and you fall madly in love. And, and, and is it really love? Is it really not? Here's the answer. It's not love. It's infatuation. What love is, is a result of having given yourself, of self-sacrifice, of joining in a true unity. That can only be built over time. Love is not a feeling. Love is a state of being where you have expanded yourself to include someone else. It's a form of unity. That takes a lot of hard work and it's extremely difficult. And anyone that has been married for any amount of time knows that it's a very challenging experience, marriage, because you're immediately forced to overcome your own selfishness for the sake of someone else. But that's exactly the point where love can be built is when your when your own selfishness is being challenged. It's very difficult work. And if we didn't know what love felt like, there is no way we would do the work that's required to truly achieve it. And so therefore, the way God built the world is that in order to inspire us to do the work that's necessary in order to achieve what's truly valuable is we get a sneak peek. We get a taste of what it really feels like. That's what infatuation is. It feels just like love, which is why it's deceiving. A lot of people think, oh, I'm in love. It's because it feels just like what love should feel like, but it's not real. It's counterfeit. It's just, it's just a taste. It's a sneak preview. This is what you could achieve if you do the work. That's infatuation. So that gives us the energy. It gives us the inspiration. Wow, this is, this is amazing. This sense of unity and, and my, my feelings toward this person. Then you use that as energy and inspiration to do the work that's necessary of overcoming your selfishness and giving to the other person. And that can eventually translate and, and transform into true love over time. And that's exactly the process that's happening here as well. When we were in Egypt, we were at a state of very low spirituality. In fact, our sages tell us that we were at the lowest level of spiritual impurity possible before we would have just been completely obliterated spiritually. God brought us out right at that moment, right before we would have been completely destroyed and not only brought us back to zero of sort of neutral between purity and impurity, but brought us all the way up to the top to stage 50, which is the highest of all the stages. That was the leaving of Egypt, the splitting of the sea. We had a complete revelation of God that is unparalleled. And that was our inspiration. This is what unity with God feels like. This is what it feels like to be a divine being, to be a total conduit for Hashem. And with that experience, we're meant to take that energy, take that inspiration. And now, if, if, because if it's just given to you as a gift, it's worthless. You have to work for it. You have to achieve it on your own. And therefore, right after Pesach, right after that experience of, of having been lifted up with all of that inspiration, we're dropped back down to zero, to neutral. And from there, we take that experience, that incredible energy that we just had of that inspiration, and we use that to start building from, from ground zero. One, two, three, four, all the way up to the point where we go all the way back up to level 50. And once we've achieved it on our own, now we have become fitting vessels to receive the Torah. So that's just another look at what this process is of counting the Omer. It seems like when you read the Torah that God does that quite a bit. Like when he describes what life was like in the wilderness for those 40 years where we received manna from the sky and the clothes grew on our backs and everything was taken care of for us. That seemed like the ideal situation that he just wanted to give us a taste of what it was like. And that's the ideal. That's sort of where he wants for us. But then he pulled it away because he wants us now to have to 
put in the effort to earn that type of life experience. Is that? Yeah, it's a hundred percent right. And this isn't our topic, but you're, what you're touching on is also the sin of the spies was very much related to this. They didn't want to go into the land of Israel. It was very comfortable living in God's arms in the desert, right? Everything's taken care of. For the, and and it's, it's, dark, it's hard to go back to zero and start working on your own. So this is just a, a tactic of making something experiential and then pulling it away and saying, now, if you want it back, earn it. Earn it so you feel deserving of it. Yeah. And, and it's not just to feel deserving of it. It would be impossible to receive the Torah if we didn't work for it ourselves. This is another discussion of, of why that is. But suffice it to say that it, it would be impossible to be given godliness, div- divinity, as a, as a free gift. It has to come from us. It has to be our own self-mastery, our own perfection. And, uh, but, but it's necessary, this inspiration. It's not just a tactic that's, that's useful. It's absolutely necessary because we have to know what's possible. We have to feel what it's really like. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know what to do. We wouldn't know where to go. We wouldn't have the energy to be able to work for it. When you're describing exactly what real love is versus infatuation, I don't know if there's a way to make a movie script for for Disney that would work with the real formula. But I always told my daughter growing up when she would watch those princess movies that those were underwritten by the... um, the Plastic Surgeon Association. The The prince would find her, she's beautiful, and then she would find some trust fund kid that never worked a day in his life, and then they lived happily ever after. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the problem. You can't you can't put real life into a movie. The, the way it really works doesn't, it's not attractive. Tell us about the process and, and what we're trying to do here. So there are really two different ways of looking at this process. And the Torah tells you these two different ways because the Torah tells us to count the Omer in in two ways. One is to count every day. And then the Torah tells us count seven weeks. So it's really the same thing. We're counting 49 days. By the way, day 50, which is Shavuot, we don't count. We only count up to 49. So the Torah says count up to that 50th day, not including. And the Torah also says count seven weeks. So this is what we do every night during this time period, right at the beginning of the night, at nightfall, we count today is... X amount of days of the Omer, which are X amount of weeks and X amount of days. For example, today, last night, today is day 10. So we would say today is 10 days, which are one week and three days of the Omer. So we do both of these parallel countings in terms of individual days and as broken up into weeks. And these are two different ways of relating to this process of what's happening. The counting in terms of days by themselves is looking at a very linear process of moving up in stages of becoming proper vessels of receiving the Torah. And these parallel what's called the 48 ways. Maybe some of your listeners have heard of this in Pirkei Avot, Chapters of Our Fathers, describes there are 48 different forms of acquisition to acquire the Torah. Because again, like we said, Torah is not an intellectual study. It's not a science. It's not physics or math. It's a way of transforming your being. And you, you need to study it. That's one of the ways, in fact. That's the first way, studying it. But there are 48 methods of acquisition, and you need every single one of them in order to completely acquire the Torah and integrate it into your being. And to the degree that any one of these is lacking, you won't be able to acquire Torah. You might be able to memorize the teachings and repeat them like a parrot. You might be able to use them and build them on build on them throughout your life, but you wouldn't have integrated into your being. So to whatever degree any one of these is missing, it's to that same degree that you'll be lacking in the true Torah that will not transform you. 
And this is an explanation for why we hear a lot of things about how the Torah can, can uplift you and, and elevate you and expand you and transform you. And you see people that study their entire lives and they're the same person. It's a tragedy. Why? Because they're not working on making themselves into proper vessels for receiving the Torah into their souls. And these, this is the secret. We're taught by our sages in, in Pirkei Avot. These are the 48 methods through which you can actually integrate it into your being. And this time period parallels those each one of those ways. So there are 49 days that we're counting, and there are 48 methods of acquisition. That 49th day that doesn't have a method of acquisition, on that day, we focus on all of them together and integrating it as a whole. But each one of these ways parallels these days. So that's something practical that we can work on. So this idea of moving from Pesach to Shavuot and understanding what this process is meant to be of transforming us, bringing us from a stage of, okay, we're back at zero. I've had my coming out of Egypt and I'm ready to start working. What should I be working on? We have the plan laid out for us. Each day parallels one of these ways and each day we should be working on that method to transform ourselves into into a being which can receive the Torah. Each one of these requires a great amount of meditation on them to, to contemplate the meaning of it and how to integrate it into your lives. There's not a tremendous amount of commentary that we find on each one of them, but they're fairly straightforward. And if you, it's all about thinking about it deeply and trying to to emulate it in your life. So I'll give you an example. Today is the 25th. It's B'Shimush Tamir Chachamim, which means serving scholars, serving Torah scholars. So how is that helpful? So I'll give you an example from the Talmud. There was a certain rabbi who had a question that he was bothered by and he was thinking about it for a very significant amount of time and didn't come up with any answers. And he had a colleague who had an answer for him. And this colleague told him, I'll tell you an answer, but first you must pick up that scarf and, and bring it to me. And he did. He picked up the scarf and he gave it to him. And then only afterward he told him the answer. And the commentaries explain why did he do this? It wasn't any sort of arrogance or need to feel above his colleague or anything like that. It was just the opposite. He needed to give his colleague a sense of subservience in order that he could receive that wisdom from him. I'll give you an example. If you are dealing with your own problem, and let's say you're, you're studying a physics problem, and you're working on it and working on it, and then all of a sudden your nephew, who hasn't really studied physics at all, comes by and he says, what are you thinking about? And you tell him this problem. Then he's says whatever comes off top of his head, and it sounds ridiculous to you. How much thought are you going to put into that answer? Not very much at all. You're going to discount it right away because it sounds ridiculous, and, and who's it coming from anyway? But if through the course of your thinking about this, you find that Albert Einstein himself struggled with this same problem, and he answered it, and that answer you don't understand. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to discount it and say, well, that's ridiculous. doesn't make any sense to me. No, you'll say, there must be a reason I don't understand this because I know that Albert Einstein knew much more about physics than I do. I know that he's very brilliant. And if he came up with this answer, the fact that it doesn't make any sense to me is a lack of my own understanding. It's a very different approach to an answer that you don't understand than you would have for your nephew. And so therefore, Shimush Tamine Chachamim has the effect, this subservience, to Torah scholars, to wise people, has the effect of framing them in a certain context of understanding when they tell me something that doesn't make any sense to me, how am I going to react to that? Will I say, doesn't make sense, it's nonsense, and move on? Or will I say, this must be a lack of my own understanding? So 
the act of serving Torah scholars is a way that puts you in that mode. This is the effect that the, the actual method that you can use to acquire is to serve the person, you know, bring them a scarf, bring them a cup of water. And an act as simple as that can do that. But this method of acquisition is much more personal. It's to literally serve scholars that, that you have contact with. Go find someone that knows Torah and serve them in some way. Bring them a coffee, invite them over and, and give them a meal. That act of making yourself subservient to a real person, to a, to a scholar that you have, that generates within yourself a subservience to Torah itself. Would it also include inviting a wise rabbi onto your podcast to teach a subject? You'd have to find a wise rabbi. Theoretically, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Give another example, just so this sort of makes sense to the listeners. Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you another example, which is very appropriate to, to our next the next part of our discussion. Tomorrow's way is bediktu chaverim, which means be very particular, to be very meticulous in working things out with, with other people, with your friend. Now, in order to do that, that requires a certain respect that you'll have for your friend. And the reason I chose this tomorrow's way is because it's a nice segue into the next issue that we need to discuss about the Omer, which is this period of mourning. For your listeners that aren't aware, this is a period of mourning. There are different traditions of when it starts. I think most people that I know, most people that I've come into contact with are in this mourning period now. Some people started a little bit later and it continues until Shavuot, but there's a period of 33 days of mourning. And the reason we do this is because there one of the greatest rabbis of all time, Rabbi Akiva. He had transformed himself into the singular conduit for the transmission of the oral Torah. He was a master scholar and a master Kabbalist. He was the channel through which Torah would be transmitted to the next generation. And throughout his studies, after 24 years of studying straight, he came back home followed by 24,000 students that he had accumulated. And these students were meant to be the people that would take the Torah from Rabbi Akiva and transmit it to the next generation. Can you imagine 24,000 people spreading that Torah wisdom to the next generation? It would have been amazing. However, within a very short period of time, these 24,000 students, all of them, died in a plague. And there are different opinions of how exactly or when exactly they did die. But for Ashkenazim, we are of the opinion that they started to die just after Passover, all the way until Shavuot. But they didn't die during certain special days. And those certain special days are the entire holiday of Passover, three total days of Rosh Chodesh, the first of the month, six days of Shabbat. And so if you add all of those together, that's 16 days that they weren't dying. And if you take 49 days, that period in between Passover and Shavuot, subtract 16, we get 33 days total that they were dying. And so therefore, our custom is that we smash all of those 33 days together and we mourn for a total period of 33 days. That starts from the day right after Passover until what's called Lag Ba'omer, the 33rd day of the Omer. So during this period, we avoid <clears throat> listening to uh, musical instruments, music of that sort. We don't cut our hair uh, or shave or anything like that. And generally try to avoid things that will bring us a lot of joy. And the reason why we're doing this is not just to mourn the fact that once upon a time, a lot of people died in a plague. This happened over and over again throughout Jewish history, be it plagues or pogroms or all kinds of things. Many Jews have died in tragic ways. What was significant about this is that an entire generation of great accomplished Torah scholars that were meant to pass the torch 
of Torah knowledge from one generation to the next, they all disappeared all at once. And that was a travesty. The, the Talmud says that the, the world was devastated until Rabbi Akiva then went to the south and found five students that he was then able to transmit his Torah to. And through those five students, we now have what we know as the oral Torah. Why did these people die? Why did they die in a plague? The Talmud tells us because they didn't give each other enough respect. And it's not insignificant that they died during this period of in-between Passover and Shavuot. This is the time period where we're supposed to turn ourselves into vessels which can receive the Torah, which can be a conduit for the Torah. And since these people, these 24,000 students, they were responsible, they were charged with the task of transmitting Torah from one generation to the next, it needed to be with 100% clarity and purity. And since they were lacking in this way of respecting their friends, not giving their colleagues enough respect one to the other, so therefore they wouldn't be able to transmit the Torah to the next generation. Because as we mentioned earlier, any lacking in any one of these methods of acquisition of the Torah, including being particular with your friends, giving honor to your friends, to the degree that that's lacking, the Torah itself will be lacking, and therefore they were improper vessels to transmit the Torah from one to the next. And this was the time period that they were supposed to be working on it, and therefore, because of their failure, they all died during this time period. And that serves as a reminder for us of how careful we need to be, especially in this generation where Torah knowledge is so weak, and so few people are in the Jewish people are really studying and are really acquiring Torah. And there may be a, a staggering number compared to a few generations ago of people that are in yeshiva, but the people that are really, truly trying to integrate it into their lives and perfect themselves and grow, it's a very small number of people. But all the more so in our generation, as people that are trying to transmit this Torah wisdom, our heritage of Torah from one generation to the next, we need to be all the more so careful about making ourselves into proper vessels and especially taking the lesson of giving proper respect to our colleagues and to our friends. Thank you for that explanation. How do you go about during this time period putting yourself into a state of mourning and how do you balance that with the fact that I believe we're always supposed to be somewhat joyful in our service of God? There's always this balance and there are certain time periods of the year which one is more balanced, more imbalanced than the other. For example, on the holidays, uh, the festivals, for example, Pesach and Shavuot and Sukkot, were meant to have more joy, more love than than fear of God, for example. And during the days of awe, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's the opposite. We're meant to have much more fear of God than love. And throughout the year, it's meant to be pretty much balanced evenly. During this time period, there should just be a little bit more stress on on having a a heavier head, so to speak, and being much more focused on correcting the wrongs of, of our ancestors. Now, obviously, anytime we do a mitzvah, that should be done with tremendous joy. Our sages gave us very clear guidelines how to observe this mourning period. Don't listen to uh, especially live music and dancing or anything like that. Don't cut your hair, which gives you a whole freshness and renewal, that kind of thing. And the Mishnah Bura, one of our most recent halachic authorities, tells us to generally try to avoid things which bring you to a great state of joy. As long as you're avoiding those things and remaining conscious of what the work is that we're supposed to be doing, you're on the right track. When I don't shave and my wife has to look at me, it puts her in a state of mourning because I don't grow a nice beard like you. I didn't know that, though. I just actually shaved last night. So going forward. 
Anything else you want to add to this topic, Rabbi, that would be helpful to the listeners? I'll just add one more thing, which is something that I heard. You know, I don't remember the source for this, which is unfortunate, but uh, maybe I can get it to you later. I heard one interpretation of why these rabbis weren't giving enough respect to each other. It seems strange that they were such accomplished scholars. And we're not talking about people that were just intellectually there. We're talking about the greatest students of Rabbi Akiva, the greatest scholar of all time. These people knew the deepest aspects of mysticism. They were supposed to be the conduits of the oral tradition. How could it be that they weren't giving each other respect, that they could be so crass? So I heard one explanation is that they, they weren't crass. They weren't disrespectful overtly to their friends, but they were true students of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva's main teaching, one of his one of his greatest teachings was He used to quote this line from the Torah, love your neighbor like yourself. He was so focused on loving your friends, loving your neighbor, love, love, love. And his students really took that into their being. And they internalized that love for other people so much that it started to have a negative effect on their ability to respect each other. When you're all chummy with someone, there's a little bit of a lack of respect there. For example, if I have a colleague, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. Now, if I were to go up and slap him on the back and say, hey, Yankel, how you doing? That shows a tremendous amount of love and closeness and friendship that we have for each other. But it's also disrespectful for a scholar of his stature. And so therefore, they were so focused on the love that they started to, they weren't giving enough respect for who these people were and what they were representing. And that's something that we should be careful of, is to always maintain this balance that when we start to take a message and we take it way too far, loving your neighbor, remember that it shouldn't impede our ability to respect them as well. I'm so glad you shared that because I did read that Rabbi Kiva was emphasized so much the mitzvah loving your neighbor as yourself. And I never knew how to reconcile that. And I guess it also reconciles with the fact that we're supposed to love Hashem and fear Hashem. And just like we're supposed to have a proper balance there, we're supposed to have a, a similar type balance with, with our peers. Right. And the way to do that is you first develop boundaries, right? Fear of God comes first. You know what's the boundaries. Once you know what's okay, what's not okay, then within those boundaries that it's appropriate, you fill it with as much love and passion as possible. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Also, when you came to Torch, you started an amazing YouTube video collection under the banner, The Average Rabbi. What I love about your videos is, for one, you have a very similar sense of humor as me. I always find myself chuckling as I watch the video, but you know how to impart very powerful concepts and ideas in these videos. And that's a very difficult skill set that a lot of people have a hard time doing is, is blending that humor and using humor as a way to deliver very important, very deep messages. So I encourage everyone to go to YouTube, type in The Average Rabbi, and hit subscribe. There are amazing videos that he puts out regularly on a whole host of subjects. So thank you so much, Rabbi Busco, for taking the time out of your day to teach us on this very important topic. And I hope that I can have you on again to talk about other subjects and for us to learn from you. It would be an honor. Thank you so much, Dan. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page.
And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.